0: Welcome to Poetry Spotlight presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is poet-novelist Amit Majmadar, who grew up in the Cleveland area. He earned a B.S. at the University of Akron and an M.D. at Northeast Ohio Medical University, completing his medical residency at the University Hospitals of Cleveland. In his precise, often formally driven poems, Majmadar explores themes of identity, history, spiritual faith, and mortality. The author of three poetry collections and multiple novels, Amit is a writer's writer. His work has appeared in dozens of anthologies and publications, and most importantly, he served as Ohio's first poet laureate. He works as a diagnostic nuclear radiologist. In addition to having two novels forthcoming in India in 2022, he is also co-creating a graphic novel and webcomic, The Kali Yuga Chronicles. Amit, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, thank you for having me um, on, on the podcast. I'm, I'm uh,
1: thrilled uh, to, to be talking with you today. Excellent. Would you mind starting us off with a poem? Sure. I'll start us off with a poem that uh, takes place in Ohio and is about Ohio. It, uh, its form is that of an alliterative poem, uh, the sort of thing that you know Beowulf is in, where it's kind of like you know, the lines are in kind of two halves and they have internal alliterative play. And this is about um, growing up in an Ohio. And that's definitely what I am. I've basically lived in Ohio. I've, I think I've lived in Ohio almost m- my whole life. Um, there was about a year and a half where we moved to briefly to India when I was in second grade, came right back and uh, been a an, uh, Clevelander for, for most of my life. And now I'm, I'm a Columbus resident. But uh, that's that's what I am, and I'm I'm an Ohioan, and this is called chili Coffee apostrophe. Here's my odi et amo ode to you, O oh, homely Ohio, of the torn up turnpike, semis crisscrossing your map like mud flap magnificent buffalo, frankfurters sweating under flecked hot lamps, backcountry. Ice cream parlor parking lots, cacophonously Kanye, where the white boys wear wife beaters and talk black with platinum-plated buck teeth. Counties once Ku Klux, now bling bling. Your Amish kitchen smoked ham and pancakes. Your former fighter pilots with Parkinson's, in whose mute dementia Ashland is inch Your trickle crooked creeks, once flush, now fishless and spanned by rust rotted struts. Your coal car carcasses, your house husks, shucked of equity to the brambles abandoned. Necrotic Cleveland, suburb encrusted, equal parts, elegy and punchline. Youngstown with no young steel mill sepulchral, Painesville painting herself pabst blue, oh you, fought for, fawned over every four years when donkeys and elephants, asinine, self-trumpeting, stampede your stadiums, factories, fairgrounds. State of the suddenly sad-eyed barflies and shrunken truckers with saggy tattoos, of immigrant internists soft-spoken and cumin cologne, of table-saw grandpas with stumps for thumbs, state of the ghost strip malls in the algae lake, alas, Ashtabula, cry, woe, Cuyahoga, oh, nowhere I am native, maker of presidents, mother of poets, oh, heart shape, oh, hardship, Ohio,
0: oh home. Thank you so very much. (laughs) So you are really specific about technique. Um, To the point that you mentioned Beowulf in our intro, to what extent does technique inform your work? And could you speak a little bit more about both this poem and your work in general?
1: Yeah, I think when we talk about technique, you know, there's always an approach to a poem and there's always the approach to the sound of the poem, because in the end, it is sound that distinguishes poetry from prose, at least for me. And I think that creatively, I'm always thinking about uh, the technical aspects of the poem, whether that's form, rhythm, assonance, alliteration, rhyme, you name it. I don't think these things are independent. Or dispensable. I think that collectively they form the character of the poem. They form, you know, the, the, it's almost as though those are the facial features. That's the bone structure of the poem. And uh, that holds true for this. It holds true for everything that I've written in the form of verse. And I think that at some level it also holds true the way I compose sentences when I write prose, and I do write a great deal of prose. Um and uh, I think that when it comes to technique, craft, form, and those elements, um, I don't regard those things as adornments I don't regard those things as um, sort of window dressing or tinsel or you know little verbal you know devices. I regard it I regard all of those elements as the Essence of the poetry, and as engines that draw the words into that particular configuration, and lead to those words having whatever effect uh, they have on the reader
0: or listener. Okay, yeah, I I, I I can see that. So, which technique is your favorite? Is there like a?
1: Oh, I, um, I don't have any particular technique that's my favorite. I jump around a lot. So, you know, there are some poets say like. You know, like Emily Dickinson, she basically really, really liked quatrains, right? She really liked rhymed quatrains, and the majority of her work was in that. Alexander Pope, the British poet, the English poet, really liked the heroic couplet, as did most of his contemporaries. Today, a lot of poets really like free verse, and they basically write everything in free verse. For me, I'll write a free verse poem. I'll jump over and write heroic couplets. I'll write one in quatrains. I'll write one in this and that and the other. I'll write one in the Beowulf meter. And I'll just jump around. And so I don't have any, any favorite particular technique or verse form or anything like that. I, in fact, my favorite verse form is all verse forms, you know, is an alternation. And all my poetry collections have, uh, usually have at least one example of anything you can think of
0: for the most part. Yeah. And that's kind of an unfair question because there's so many techniques that inform each other, right? Like- right. You have you have a lot of stuff that, you know, rhyming informs meter, and right. and and rhyme works to alliteration. Right. So, you had once said that, you know, your your work examines life in solitary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What does that mean for audiences listening? Well, I think
1: that my, my most recent book is called What He Did in Solitary. And um, for me, I don't think necessarily this is the case for all poets. But for me in particular, reading and writing has always been a very solitary endeavor. I don't have that many poetry friends or literary friends. My best friends, um, you know, my best friends in the world don't read. They don't read poetry. They don't read fiction. They don't read any, any creative sort of stuff same goes for my family members whom I love dearly. And, um, that's just always been a baseline element of my, of my life, which is that the people that I have frequently have the closest personal relationships with are people outside the world of poetry, uh, and, and in many cases outside the world of literature entirely and have no relationship to it. um, and so, in that case, in that sense, it's a very solitary endeavor. And I'm aware that a lot of poets have a ton of poet friends. Some people only seem to have essentially, you know, literary, intellectual type friends. And 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 that's not me at all. So, you know, what that means for the reader uh, is that uh, you know you are my friend. You are my literary friend. If you're picking up my book, I wrote it for you because that is, there's no one else that I wrote it for. You know. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a way in which I treasure readers and a way in which my poetry welcomes the reader, um, wants to be a good host to the reader, um, and hopefully be a good friend to the reader uh, from, from first page to last. And I think that that's something that readers can expect, which is that I'm going to entertain them and I'm going to play music for them verbally, play verbal music for them and create images and show them pictures and tell them stories um, in the in the course of my verse, and it's not going to be some sort of very very uh elliptical and impenetrable verse it's going to be it's going to perhaps make you work to understand it and to appreciate it, but it will there'll always be something there it'll never be the situation where you'd read something and you're like, "What did that mean, and why did I just read it?" Um,
0: that's not the kind of poetry I write yeah. Well, and I think that's an important point because none of my friends have English backgrounds. They're more like engineering tech Mm -hmm. type people. And same with you, you're you're a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wonder, do you think that gives you an advantage when you're writing? Do you feel like it's freeing or do you feel like it's alienating? Like, how does that... Work for you?
1: you know, that's a, that's a that's a wonderful question, and I think that those two, you know, potential answers that you mentioned, kind of cover the spectrum, right? Um, and they they are both pertinent answers that I could give to that particular question. So, from a careerist standpoint, is it an advantage to be that kind of outsider? I don't think so. You need to have a network. Uh, in order to be nominated for awards, in order to have access to grants, uh, invitations, the things that signal boost your work. If you're just a doctor in suburban Ohio, these people don't know you. And they're not, you're, you're not friends with them because you never met them. You never studied with them. You never taught anybody and you're just out in out in the middle of nowhere doing your work and yeah i mean it can be respected and you can get published in various places but there's a certain absence of a network that does not assist you in getting your work recognized or getting your work to the maximum possible number of readers uh which is because in an arbitrary a field where you know the currency is not sales in poetry the currency is you could consider it prestige, I guess. That's the currency for which poets compete. Um, those types of prestige markers are arbitrarily distributed. Arbitrarily meaning there's an arbiter, meaning there's a judge, right? And who gets nominated for what? Who wins what? Uh, these are all arbitrary decisions. You know, there's there's poets who are equally talented, who have written just as wonderful work, but they're not going to be recognized in that way because they don't, nobody knows who they are. Now, Having put that aside, having put aside the career element of it now, is it, is it an advantage for, um, you know, from a creative standpoint? Uh, potentially, and I think that it sets you apart just because you can't, you know, that's, that's something that's going to percolate into your work. And I think that things that make you different make you interesting, you know, uh, and they can make your work seem different than other people's work. And it's nice to be set apart that way. Having said that, if you go too far out of contemporary conventions, that too is an alienating factor. Um, so, so you can truly create startling. Everyone says, oh, I want to create something that's startlingly original and just, you know, my unique voice. Yeah, do that, but do it to a point, because if you go past a certain point, then no one's going to be able to, you know, see eye to eye with your work because you're going to be too unique. Um, And so kinship elements, you know, again, it's probably more alienating than not because, you know, a physician does not have the kind of professional or cultural kinship with, you know, poetry readers or other poets that a fellow poet or a poet professor would have. Um, But to refer to what you said earlier probably is a little bit liberating because, uh, I know that I have nothing to compete for and nothing to win. So I can just do whatever I want at any given point in time and no one's watching. I'm just, I can just do whatever I want. So that's, that's, that's a nice feeling too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no. and, And it's kind of refreshing to hear, you know, we've, I've done a few, a few recordings with this podcast and no one's really gotten into demographic and like what you know a lot of people are really concerned with what makes them tick like what and and that's probably the best way to approach poetry is like this is what makes me a human being this is how I translate that to to words but you're describing something a little different which is demographic which is you know there is a line between what is your creative limit and what the audience can accept so as a person who was poet the the first poet laureate of ohio right would you mind talking about that a little bit because i'm sure that you walked out there as a medical doctor as a as a scientifically minded person Mm -hmm. which i (laughs) i'm going to confess i feel is kind of my origin like i i I was the chemistry major and Mm -hmm. chemistry was always something that grounded me. Um, And then I walked into poetry in graduate school, which was not grounding at all. I was, I was Benjamin Franklin, you know, or I was bent, you know, I was, I was flying the kite waiting to get struck by lightning. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that line between demographic, like what is socially acceptable and what you want to accomplish personally as a poet.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that, um, it's important to remember that writing is communication. And if you think about it in, I guess, technological terms, you can think of it as a transmitter and a receiver, right? And as a poet uh, or as a novelist or essayist or anything, when you are creating a work of writing, you're transmitting. And if we limit our discussion to poetry, poetry is automatically, being transmitted at a frequency that very few people tune into, okay? In the larger scheme of books that are read, pieces of writing, sequences of words that are read by people, poetry is, a, you're, you're automatically, as soon as you throw line breaks into anything, you're automatically diminishing your audience drastically. Now, for the the poetic experience doesn't, is not, exclusively dependent on your sequence of words or you as the poet it is also dependent on the reader it is also dependent on the person who is receiving your signal and there are poems that i've written that have left certain people cold and other people have written me emails out of the blue strangers you know and every time i get a po- a letter or an email rather from a from a reader somewhere who has come across one of my poems and just was like, I had to write you about this because I really like this and it's just so great. (laughs) I I mentally think to myself, you know, that was rejected four times by some of the most esteemed editors in in, in the country, right? And, or if you get a review, and in review they quote some poem as being particularly special and good. And you think to yourself, yeah, I know all the magazines that rejected that and it almost didn't even see the light of day it just happened to get it accepted at this one random tiny journal um this webzine and I ended up putting it in the book because I thought it was good and oh look it stood out when in reality the elite places didn't didn't publish it I don't blame the editors at those other places that rejected it. I don't blame anyone who rejects it it's simply that at this point the way I look at it is that they are not, they were not receiving on a Frequency that I was transmitting at, but there are people out there scattered, tiny, tiny minorities within the already tiny minority of people who read poems at all, who may well be receiving at that that frequency, who may be somehow primed or somehow um, on the same wavelength as me, on the same, uh, you know, have the same background as me. Maybe they have a science background. Maybe they have a background in you know, Hindu metaphysics, maybe they may have a background in Greek mythology, or whatever it is I'm on about in that particular poem, and they, and they vibe to it, and, and that's what you, that's why you write, that's why you are doing, that's, you know, that's why as a poet, you're just hoping that that kind of thing, um, that kind of connection happens, and it's dependent on the reader.
0: So, you're describing, you know, a niche that you're fulfilling, but you were the poet laureate, so you—you know—you filled not more than a niche. You mm-hmm. fulfilled the first poet laureate that the state of Ohio has had ever. Right. And so, my question is: like, it's—it's it's good. I, th- I think there's like a, a line between like I write what I want, and other people will meet me halfway. Mm -hmm. And I write what other people want to see, and I'll meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. Um, So is is that something that you felt you encountered? Because
1: I think that as poet laureate, you know, there's certain, you know, every poet has certain poems that they read in public. You know, out of the book that you have published, there's a certain set of subset of poems within that book, and this is almost universally true of practicing poets, it's like those are the poems that I'm going to read in front of an audience if, I, if I'm if i invited to a, 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 a reading, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and you know what those are as the poet because you know that you get the audience with those. You know that there's something direct about them, perhaps something that dovetails with contemporary political concerns or socio-political concerns, um, something that has like a like a tight ending, something that has, you know, something that people will like. And, and then you just play with, you just, you just, you know, recycle those at every reading. And, and I've seen other poets do it. I myself do it. And that is, you know, when you're a laureate, you stick to the hits. You don't do esoteric stuff because a lot of times the audience is, you know, just good folks who are out to hear the poet laureate of the, of the state. And so, um, yeah, if you're, if you're in there as you're, if you're there in a public ceremony or some sort of public event and you're there in your capacity as poet laureate, you just keep it, you don't, you don't go esoteric. You just keep it public. You just keep it accessible and you keep it, um, you know, in a certain way. And and that's part of the job. And that's part of the role that you're, you're fulfilling the role that I felt that I was fulfilling. Um so whenever I was invited as poet laureate you know I stuck to the I stuck to the the few that I knew were going to
0: get through Sure well and and so that begs the question like as poet laureate did you feel cuz you wrote about you know opiate addiction and you wrote about riots like in 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 beyond the United States so my question is how then did you reconcile this activist part of yourself with what the audience wanted to hear? Did you care? Did you? Oh yeah. You those, those,
1: those things, you know, those, those poems that you're referring to, I don't nec- I didn't necessarily present to audiences at, at that time. You know, um, I write so many things and so many different s- types of poetry that, you know, what you're describing, you know, politically charged poetry, or I I hesitate to call it activist poetry, because I don't really do much of what is... That's my word, that's my vote. Okay, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I don't do traditionally much of what is considered (laughs) activism, and, you know, sometimes activism in poetry tends to, you know, kind of oversimplify things, and I try and bring imagery and complexity to it, as opposed to simplifying it for a political end. So, Really those poems, I mean, there's just no point in reading those in that particular context. So it's it's really just context dependent. I think that's the right way to, to describe it. So I don't <clears throat> you know, I didn't I only wrote a few poems related to um related to, you know, for the laureateship. I didn't it was not like a here, here's another event. I need you to write a poem for it. That's not how the laureateship really works. Um you're more of an ambassador for the art, n- not
0: necessarily a gun for hire. That's that's a really good, concise way to describe it. So let me ask you about the laureate ship because, you know, mm-hmm. listeners are definitely going to want to know, um, you know, how did you approach it and what did you accomplish during mm-hmm. your time in the position? Well I, well, I wanted to
1: obviously bring poetry to a, a larger audience. Um, and so the, one of the first things I did was, and this is separate from whatever places I was invited to to read. Um, What I did was I did a uh, sort of dance music drama thing with um, my wife is a classical Indian dancer. And so she had all these connections with that. So we got um, Dublin's uh, Abbey theater and we, we actually filled that whole theater and we did this performance and uh, I was reciting poetry and there were a bunch of uh, you know, beautiful Indian women in traditional costume doing like, dances uh mythological you know on mythological themes the theme was metamorphoses so Ovid has that poem metamorphoses and so I re kind of reimagined it with Indian mythology and um had a bunch of cool scenes and 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 I you know it was it was it was a really fun fun thing and then there was that and then um one other thing that I tried to do it didn't really work out was that uh I was going to link up uh you know accomplished Ohio poets with student poets from the most underprivileged school districts in the state. And I got a lot of uh you know help and and buy-in from the Department of Education. I got a wonderful response from a tremendous number of highly talented and nationally respected poets who are based in Ohio. And, um, I was able to link people up, but one of the problems that I think we we ran into was that a lot of the kids who were not I mean, the kids were nominated by their English departments at their respective high schools as being particularly, you know, having a particular talent for poetry. And so, sure, what what ended up happening though, was that a lot of those students,, um, you know, because they were from very underprivileged school districts, they often had, other things going on in their family life and and social life, um, you know, disadvantages that, you know, precluded them from really following through as much as we would have liked, Um, which is, I guess, in retrospect, that was a little predictable, perhaps, because if you if you only went to the, you know, go getter top 10 school districts in the state, you know, you would have people who had plenty of leisure and plenty of, you know home security and plenty of you know home life security and and all of those types of things that we take for granted um but a lot of these kids didn't and and that was eye opening you know in in and of itself um we did have some mentorships that that lasted but i think there were there were other other factors that that didn't quite allow that to
0: to come through sure and i don't want to ask you to comment on generally the state of education in ohio <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to really. My wife
1: is a school teacher; she might have uh, more more insight into that. Although she hasn't taught in a few years here, but um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. No, I think. I mean, as far as the the Department of Education and how I interface with them, they were wonderful, um, and they were so helpful, and uh, and really gave me the time and resources that I more than I, I could have asked for. So, I mean, from 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 that sort of bureaucratic you know element aspect to it uh no complaints on my end um
0: so yeah sure sure and and i think what i'm curious to ask and i think what other people who are interested in poetry who might be able to take poetry beyond themselves and like bring to the community the mentorships you mentioned that were successful are there any things you could think of that made those things successful versus others that were less
1: um, you know, it, it, that was something that it was, it seemed more, um, just random really as to, cause I mean, I, I, did not go and investigate everyone's individual situation, you know, Hey, why didn't you follow through with this when I had, you, when I hooked you up with this, you know, national <laughs> award-winning poet, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. So, so I, I can't, I can't exactly answer that question in any meaningful way, but, uh, uh, you know, it's a good idea. And, and, you know, maybe at some point, some future laureate will be able to, uh, you know, execute it more effectively. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it wasn't in the cards.
0: That's, that's fine. I it's feel a like I'm putting you on the spot.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: It was a bit you're, too ambitious, perhaps. You're a demographically minded, quantitative person. And I wanted to, like, see if you had any answer? Well, my, my <laughs> meta-analysis
1: is uh, uh, an empty set.
0: <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good to know. <laughs> so when we you first read your poem for this episode, you, you talked about technique to the point where you mentioned Beowulf, which I think is really interesting because I just did a thing on Beowulf last year. Um, yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about technique and how you use it in your style and how you see the role of technique versus empathy?
1: Um, You know, technique versus empathy, um, I think is just, you know, it's not even um, a dichotomy for me. I think those are just sort of parallel things that are ongoing uh, in a poem uh, to varying degrees. Uh, And I think they're almost independent in the sense that, you know, you can ratchet one up or ratchet the other up. Ratchet them both up, you know, ratchet one down, you know, it's just, it is, it's really, uh, it it all depends on the poem and the type of poem that you're trying to write. As far as technique itself, uh, as far and I assume you mean, you know, formal techniques. I, I, I suppose that's what you're talking about. I, I, Um, I, I, that's what I
0: mean. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh,
1: So as far as formal techniques are concerned um, I regard those as um, creating a, a, a sort of potential space for language to fill. Um, it creates a, a vacuum, and then it draws language into those empty spaces, that particular shape and sound of language. And so if you know that you're going to have uh, two half lines that are going to alliteratively interact with one another, and you have something that you're trying to express, it will express itself in a specific way when you are guiding them, guiding those words into place, selecting those words on the basis of their musical or phonetic characteristics. And that is a a sort of conscious space that you're making that has a specific contour, a specific phonetic contour. And then in that world, in that world of the poem, in that vacuum that that potential space of the poem Youngstown will be described as quote steel mill sepulchral because it has so many s's
0: and l's in it that's that's incredibly interesting and I guess I'm wondering you know between that's an incredibly good like an awesome answer to give basically on the spot. Like you, you know, and, and I'm wondering like, where do you see the line between your poetic self, which is extremely magnified versus your potent professional self, which is a medical doctor, you know, you, you, how did those come to, how did they come to terms with each other? Um, you know, I think that
1: uh, you know, I, when I write, uh, a lot of times, I'm just not in that particular mindset um, as, a, as of a doctor. But having said that, it does come up in my work a lot. I've noticed or other people have told me that I refer to you know body parts and, and anatomy a lot in the human body. Because like, if you think about it, like seven hours out of my day, I'm looking at human bodies because I'm a radiologist, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I know
1: the anatomic terminology for literally thousands of little micro anatomical details in, your, in the human body. Like, you know, like the amount of anatomy that I know just for my day job is like, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole nother language. It's a whole nother vocabulary. Um, majority of what I do as a radiologist is writing. And, and I read, you know, 16,000. I prepare 16,000 reports a year, separate from the novels and poems that I write. And all of that is language, all that is writing, all that is communication between me and the, you know, the doctor who is, you know, requested the scan on a given patient. And it leads to diagnosis, it leads to treatment, it leads to patient care, um, and outcomes. Um, what does that have to do with my work as a, as a writer? Um, I think that there are certain characteristics that overlap between a good radiologist and a good poet, one of which is observation, meaning that you have to look very closely at the CT scan. Are you going to miss something just as a poet has to look very closely at the world around him or her, or they're going to miss something, something, some detail that, you know, would work in a poem or that will add power to the poem. I think that precision is another, another, um, another element, but it's also vagueness. Precision and vagueness are both techniques, as we were mentioning. They're both um, characteristics that can be exploited for poetic effect. But in a radiology report, there is a time to be precise, and there's also a time to be vague. So if uh, you are measuring a a mass that has undergone treatment, you have to measure it exactly on your present day scan and compare it to the exact measurements on the prior scan. You have to be very precise. But if you are looking at a chest X-ray and there's a little hazy area at the base of the lung, it could be a pneumonia, it could be something benign, where a little bit of lung has just been collapsed. And so you have to be vague and you have to say, this could be infiltrate or meaning a pneumonia, or it could be atelectasis, which is meaning a benign sort of area where the lung is a little bit squished. And so precision and vagueness, the dance of precision and vagueness um, and being deliberate about where you're precise and being deliberate about where you are being vague and, and and indeterminate; those are both things that apply to radiological writing and poetic writing.
0: Because hmm. that's really interesting. Because you've you've written several poetry collections, but you've also published novels. Mm-hmm. You know, Partitions, The Abundance, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm. I guess my question is. Because poetry is real about, it's really about specific text, textual details, like getting into the weeds, whereas novels are about, you know, extolling story. Do you feel more at home with one versus the other? And do you see that, do you see either one as having a greater, you know, overlap with what you do professionally? Because and, and and i i wonder this you know as as a person who you know with a technical background there's always the question yes i'm communicating technically and i'm giving people the facts mm-hmm. but what what i am doing does it have more overlap with certain like like creative skills and would i be able to communicate with anyone
1: right you know i think that the, the, the heart of the matter there is the uh, poetry novel distinction, which is, is fuzzier than we, you know, we give credit for. And I think that so many poems take the form of anecdotes and so many novels uh, utilize poetic effects of imagery, um, parallelism, and 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 all sorts of devices to gain power, right? And in the end, it's about having an effect on the reader and giving your language the best possible chance to have some deep and transformative effect on the reader. And there are places in Partitions, my first novel, where I have gone into runs of iambic pentameter half unwittingly. There are... Images in those novels that I've written that are, um, you know, I regard as equally powerful or or affecting as anything that I've created in the field of poetry. Um, There are poems of mine that take the form of storytelling. And um, in my opinion, uh, I don't necessarily draw that keen a distinction between either one between either genre. I do know that, uh, you know, I began as a kid writing novels, but very quickly in my adolescence, I flipped to poetry. But even a lot of that poetry was like verse plays where I was trying to like resurrect the theater of Shakespeare at age 16. It was weird stuff. Weird I've stuff. Been there. Yeah, it's That's, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's weird it, stuff that I used to write when I was a teenager. It was just, it's just like it's just crazy. It's, um, it's incredible. Yeah. And I'm in glad fact, the internet wasn't there at that time. You no, know, you know what? You know what? I you know, you said you wanted me to read a second poem, right? I'm gonna read I do. A stuff from my from a book that I self-published when I was 17. I was in high school. Please. Nobody me... knows about this book. It's <laughs> called Entrance. All right. Nobody knows about it. And, and in half of the book, I imitate Emily Dickinson. And in the other half of the book, I imitate Shakespeare. Oh, yes. Yes. It's it's completely <laughs> the most bizarre book you'll ever read. And I guarantee you, no teenager, people, when, when teenagers write poetry, it's like, oh, you know, she broke up with me and now, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's life experience. The dark right? soul, the dark night of my soul, now that she's gone, <laughs> X, you know, X, I want to flip my wrists. Instead, I was doing this really bizarre stuff. I was, and I, and the megalomaniacal ambition that it would take to be like, I'm going to write Dickinsonian <laughs> quatrains and I'm going to resurrect the verse drama of Shakespeare. As it's a just, teenager, I, I, that's I, I, how that... I called it myself, to be honest with you, <laughs> and my younger self. So, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Hold
0: that thought. I got to get this thing. No, it's, <laughs> no problem. No problem.
1: All right.
0: Unfortunately, this is
1: audio, or I could show you this, this artifact, okay? This is it. This is the book that I
0: self-published. Where did you self-publish that? What? Where did you self-publish it? Was it on Amazon?
1: No, Amazon didn't really do that kind of thing yet. This is
0: 1997, my friend. Oh, my goodness. I was so, 11. Like, what it was was, like, <laughs> right
1: down the street from my high school, there was progressive insurance headquarters you heard of the progressive insurance
0: oh sure yeah. yeah
1: and so we went there and they had this whole like printing arm right and like yeah. basically with the help of like the uh the gifted program teacher we went to them and we were like I have this this kid has this manuscript can <laughs> you can you assist in the publication of this in book form <laughs> and then a lot of things happened I, and and dot 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 uh, there was a box of these that showed up <laughs> and, like, and here it is this artifact which one day after my nobel i'm going to sell one of these on ebay and it's going to it's going to go for some money all right let me let me know
0: when it's up i'll be your first customer
1: <laughs> i'm going to give you one i'm going to give you a copy as as a complimentary copy and you just have to hold it you have to hoard it for the next like 30 years while I have a meteoric rise to fame and then at the end of those 30 years you pop this bad boy on eBay and a, and 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 a you know and a and, and Bezos because he'll, he'll still be alive by then because he'll have various
0: technological means to yeah he's, he's gonna be to plugged dis- into his life and stuff like he's gonna survive 250 he's,
1: yeah exactly well he's gonna upload <laughs> himself into the into the cloud or something you know and so then he will he will he will you know it, you, you'll, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be set You and your descendants will be set I'm sure.
0: I will be sure. In the safest place I know, which is my yes.
1: closet. <laughs> it, it's completely, it's completely ridiculous. This whole book is ridiculous. But I will, and please, anyone who's listening to this podcast, please realize that Jeremy and I were just fooling around here. I don't really think this is worth anything. This is trash. <laughs>
0: Right? This is the first poem in this book that I wrote when I was 17, okay? I did not expect him to get out of his chair and pull this book out. I, I, <laughs> this was totally out this of nowhere. Called <laughs> Nocturnal
1: in the Noon. Nocturnal in the noon of God, we curl on the bark and open our owl eyes but to behold the dark. In my despair, my drowsing day, with this the branches shook I know the sun's above me now. I need not even look.
0: You know, I, we, we joked about this for like the last two to three minutes, but I have to say that's a lot better than what I was writing as a teenager. <laughs> picnic. picnic. I, still, I actually ended up getting this one
1: published years later because I saw it in this book and I was like, you know what? I bet I could get this published. And I actually did get this one published, but I didn't tell him I wrote it when I was 17. Right, Picnic. picnic. There is much casual in death, much random at our last, as if God, chatting on a lawn, were picking at the grass.
0: Oh, <laughs> I like it. Like the, That's not it's not bad, it's, actually. No, it, it, really it is. It's good. I was, I was expecting us to, like, kind of riff on it a little bit, but honestly, I have nothing I even have that.
1: one called On Entering Medicine. I have one called On Entering Medicine.
0: Please, please read it. Okay.
1: This is actually, I think in, uh, oh, you know what I'm doing in this poem? I'm like pre- pretending that I'm uh, going to give up writing because I wrote a lot in my, in my high school years, right? And then I went yeah. into this accelerated program where I did like two years of college and I went straight to medical school to get my MD. And so at this point, I was kind of like, I'm going to go into medicine. And I'm going to give up writing. And <laughs> why am I doing it? Peace out. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Why? And, uh, and, um, and, uh, and I'm going to do it because, uh... <laughs> well, here you go. Okay, here, this is why. <laughs> this is me at age 17, okay? I'm a year away from going off into this accelerated medical program. <clears throat> Chains and a lock to close the loyal factory. My energies must, must switch and all endeavors passionate be laid off now, like laborers too costly to rove ragged. In paying poetry my hours and intelligence, I spend my promise, my ability. It must not starve away, but neither must it eat of me. The bullish market of my inspiration might yet crash. If not, I'll have to Pen the public preference for an unconscionable game. Think on my melancholy paradox. I am a patriot, either heroed by a foreign government or shot by his
0: own. Nice. Yeah, this is miles above, like, you know, I'd probably give this some notes if if it appeared in my workshop, but it, it is miles above what I was writing at 17. Like I, I also wrote poetry as a teenager and it is also, some that's of the most the best
1: stuff. That's the best stuff. That's, and, uh, it's the, definitely know, the raw stuff. It's, it's the raw, it's the real, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I even wrote, you know, one of the, one of the Shakespearean verse places, verse plays in this thing is uh, Don, Don Juan. It's like the seducer of Seville. You know, know, there's like a Mozart opera on it, Don Giovanni and all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. And I totally wrote this whole like play and, uh, and it's like, it's in Shakespearean blank verse. And, (laughs) and, and and like, there's a couple of these in here and basically, uh, hold on one second. Okay. The last one. Okay.
0: Yeah, please. You know, it's funny you mentioned Don Juan because I, when I was nineteen, I wrote a monologue because Don Juan has this, uh, um, you know, when 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 he's talking in his poetry about because he's a braggart, he brags yeah. about his yeah. his exploits, and there's one point where he brags about how he drinks the dregs of his wine, you know, his wine cup. He he drinks the last little bits so he gets the most alcohol possible. And I wrote this like really melodramatic thing when I was 19 and I don't think I'd have your courage. Like, I'm not sure I could <laughs> read it here.
1: <laughs> oh man.
0: I, 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 I
1: actually, you know what? There's part of me that like, that, that doesn't entirely like that. I, I just, I'm fond of it because it's like, so it's so just ridiculously uh What's the word? It's like ridiculously ambitious. And I kind of, uh, I kind of, I kind of don't mind it in that respect. You know what I'm saying?
0: I do. And I also think, I think there's a really big benefit for listeners to be listening to Ohio's first poet laureate reading stuff they wrote as a teenager, because that is inclusive. That's like, everybody's written melodramatic stuff or written right. stuff at the inception of their skill. And it's. I think it's really important for people to hear this. Like, I think it's really nice to sit and ruminate on stuff that we know might not be perhaps the greatest, you know, you know, poetry. Yeah, or, <laughs>
1: or definitely, definitely not.
0: Uh, not something we'd write in our 30s, 40s and 50s. Right, right exactly.
1: <laughs> and that's okay, no, because I think um, it's important yeah hold on one second I'm I'm gonna I, I I remember one passage from this whole thing okay uh and I and I remember it uh hold on one second all right so at this so so at this particular point in time Don Juan is about to get dragged to hell by the by the uh statue of stone and one of his his uh the the women he has seduced uh uh you know has visit has come in but he's kind of hidden away and his servant has to basically uh you know uh you know get her out of there but she leaves a letter okay and yeah. then he he basically uh takes that letter and then he mockingly reads it okay 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 <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so <laughs> You know, so so the, uh, the, the, uh, the servant's name is Cavallo, okay? And, and he's Don Juan, okay? Uh, and so Don, so, so Don Juan basically is, he's like complimenting him on, on the performance that he did to get this, get this crazy girl out of his house, okay? Yeah, Bravo sir. for that performance. Cavallo, you played a perfect compliment to her pathetics. Cavallo. The only role a novice can enact runs parallel to truth. Sir, unrehearsed, my lines were spoken. Don Juan, spoken lines, perhaps, but not the silent lie that drew them. That I had you memorize. Do not blame me. The devil's not damned when his servants sin. Cavallo, I question not your expertise, Don Juan, upon that subject. Don Juan, ruining ones like her earned me my doctorate. I frame them on my bedroom wall that all my students know of my credentials. Seville has not a better university. The letter, Cavallo. She was so pure. The lady's tearing washed you clean again, I take it? Speaking to me, you are soiled. The letter, Cavallo. Cavallo obeys. What has this girl to write? I have embittered her. Now shall I see if on sweet lips I taste misanthropy. I have wondered why it touches current breaks on just one side, while the other still shocks with the electricity of it. Juan, I love you. May I say that simply, without veiling the cliché with metaphor? This is no new exchange for you. I have heard you barter words for kisses and promises for more. But do not cheat me, Juan. I am not experienced. (sighs) Romantics down the page. These girls, they cannot write. They must have every line nine months pregnant within motion. Wait, though, wait, she's summarizing. Listen, caval. I would end myself, perhaps with a poison, perhaps with a cut to the wrists that would let my love flow out with my blood and kill me as it should in its exit. Return to me that we may nurture our damnation together and perhaps defy it with love. She tries to lure me with damnation, that might almost tempt me to the act that's that that's me like imitating shakespeare <laughs> at six at 17 that's so it's so ridiculous you should edit that whole thing out i can't even believe i read it <laughs> <laughs> no i think that's... i'm just publicly humiliating myself on your podcast with my juvenilia
0: <laughs> you know if if there's ever a demand for it i promise to read my teenage poetry now you have things. to bring it out
1: you have to bring it out
0: <laughs> it's so much worse than that like it's <laughs> no
1: bring it out that way that way there's solidarity we we both go down and we both go down uh, to jeering and and uh <laughs> and laughter and mocking laughter together
0: i promise yeah. if ever i get the chance i will do it publicly and i will reference this episode because i i feel like it i feel count. like the camaraderie demands it
1: it's like no you gotta you gotta if you have it you have to bring it out now if it's at your parents house or something it's tucked away I mean I'll
0: I'll, I'll accept that you no know, it's I'll on it. my I'll computer that
1: as, like, as an excuse I bet you have it on the bookshelf like right behind you right there I can see some books on there.
0: no I didn't even I see some folders I can see some uh old binders from high school oh they're back there they they, they don't have my poetry but they're on my computer. They're all there. I still have them. I have poetry from like when I was like eight or nine.
1: (laughs) Now that scene, you know, that scene that I just read from, I actually, uh, (laughs) I got some friends together and I actually uh, put on a play in high school. That's (laughs) awesome. I was that. And then I had my buddy, he was really good at the violin. And so there's a scene where I wrote where like a violinist comes in and plays Pablo de Sarasate Zigoinerweisen. Sure. And he, and this kid, this friend of mine, John Lynn, who today is a pastor in Texas. Anyway, he came in and he played the violin really beautifully um, on stage as well. And uh, and it was a it was an interesting performance. I mean, people really dug it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's really
0: cool. Like, did, did you? At what point did you decide, because you've been writing poetry for a long time, at what point did you decide, hey, I'm going to become a doctor?
1: Um, I just kind of knew that, like, both my parents are doctors, and my sister went to the same program that I eventually went to, and so it was just kind of like, that was what our family profession was, so I just kind of, it's just kind of like, I just, that was like a good profession, and, you know, it's... um, You know, you, you can, you can earn a good living without having to do things that besmirch you morally, you know what I'm talking about? Like, so, I mean, there's ways to quote unquote, get rich, but like there's, you can simultaneously sell your soul doing that. This is a way to get to, you know, earn a good living while helping people. And that was very much something that I felt was noble. Um, And I'm really, I I really believe, you know, that some professions are are nobler than others. Like I think teaching is a very noble profession. My wife is a teacher and I care more about the nobility of the profession um, than necessarily it's worldly rewards. But I do think that it's nice that, you know, medicine has both things going for it. And so it was the family profession. Um, It was not something where I was like, "Er, be a doctor my parents are making me be a doctor it was kind of like i'm gonna be a doctor because there's a lot of other things out there where you're gonna end up you're gonna end up corrupting yourself
0: sure yeah and <laughs> i can't i think we can all agree that like paparazzi is at the other end of the spectrum mm. <laughs> you know what i mean like there's no argument there <laughs> all right well um is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up uh no, thank you to the Ohio Poetry Association
1: for uh inviting me to uh come on the podcast. And uh it was a, it was a f- fun talking to you. And um yeah, if you have anything else you want to ask, fire away. Otherwise, uh it was wonderful talking to you.
0: I would love to. I mean, I wish I could take these all to two hours, but unfortunately we have we have kind of a time limit going. So all I can say is thank you so very much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for reading your teenage work. I think everybody will be, you know, I, you I, know, I, I do think it's important beyond like the hilarity of it. Like, ha 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 ha. We wrote this as teenagers, but I think there's something important there, which is we all start somewhere and right. it's tough looking back at stuff that we wrote originally and saying, yeah, I'm happy with that. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's, and and it's it's great to, like, laugh and, like, listen to these emulations, but that emote, like, your your poetry emoted even then. So I don't want to, like, cast it aside as, like, teenage drivel, because it's not. It's definitely better than what I wrote as a teenager. <laughs> I'll say it you know, a second it, time. It, 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 it really it, is.
1: Everyone, you know, I think that that's, that's an important, also an important point, actually, which is that if you look at the juvenilia of, all if not almost almost all are all poets, like you're always you, people start out writing in imitation, and it's actually a very good way to learn. And I you could you can think of this as, you know, some of those things are imitating Shakespeare, some of those things are imitating Dickinson. Those are those are the schools I went to. You know what I'm saying? Like I never went to an MFA program, I never went to grad school in poetry. I went to the school of Shakespeare and the school of Dickinson. And so I kind of like learned to write in those schools back when I was a teenager you know yeah so that's that's kind of what that's kind of uh, it's I I think that if you're a young poet starting out or you're a teenage poet or something like find poets that you love and try and write like them and eventually you'll go through it you'll learn what they do and then you learn to do your own thing and that's how you become an original poet is by imitating other people
0: exactly and like I tell that you know I, I I have been doing a workshop for a while and I get people in their sixties who are writing for the very first time and mm. they emulate and they apologize and I say there's nothing to apologize for. You just you're doing what you're supposed to. It's how the brain learns. It's like going to school.
1: It's like you went to Dickens Emily Dickinson University. You went to William Shakespeare University. Those are very good universities to go to,
0: you know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for being just so very forward and honest and forthcoming. Like it was, it was a great interview. And uh, all I have to say is this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please visit, please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit OhioPoetryAssociation.org for more information. And thank you for thank you so much for joining. Thank you.